what goes into a player projection? What is the best methodology to turn projected stats into dollar values? What are some of the blind spots of projections? We'll answer these questions with Ray Murphy of Baseball HQ, plus we'll finish our outfield preview. That's all coming up next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and back on the show this week is Ruven Guy. Welcome back, Ruven. I'm doing great. I had a nice restful couple of days. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We had uh, Bubba Entrickin on the show to fill in for you. He did a fantastic job. Thank you, Bubba, for coming on. But uh, always great to have you back as, uh, as usual. So uh, glad to have you back. Thanks. I was too busy watching this thing called basketball where they throw a ball through a hoop i've never i don't think we ever discussed it on the show before but there's other other sports out there besides baseball believe it or not that is true including uh pickleball i actually uh played some pickleball with uh, frank stamfel the other day it was uh, a lot of fun we we broke the news of the signing of josh Hader right when we were playing so that was uh, that yep. was kind of fun uh and uh what's going on right now we got a pitch con uh nick pollock and pitcher list put on this great five-day online conference, so we're right in the middle of that. You were on it today, I was on it today, and our following guest was also just on it today. Uh, you know him from Baseball HQ. Welcome, Ray Murphy. How are you, Ray? Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite, guys. Our pleasure, and just want to start with uh, talking about First Pitch Florida, which is coming up in just over a month from now. Why don't you uh, tell uh, tell the audience what's going to be uh, with it? I'll be down there, and uh, I'm looking forward to fun. So why don't you just tell the audience what's going on? Yeah, super excited about it. It's uh, our now twice a year live in-person conference. It's nice to be able to do these things in person. Uh, we do Arizona in the fall, and we do Florida in the spring. It's uh, March 1st to 3rd. It's a full weekend of fantasy baseball in uh, the Tampa Clearwater area. We basically will spend our mornings doing uh, fantasy baseball strategies, sessions, panel discussions, etc. In the afternoon, we generally go out to ball games, and at night we do drafts. So that's kind of our thumbnail sketch for you know mid kind of midday Friday through midday Sunday for a uh, a weekend with getting some sun and some baseball in Florida, both uh, in person checking out the spring training games and also just immersing ourselves in the uh, at that point. Uh, just around the corner, MLB and fantasy season ahead. Oh, it's fantastic. It's just a couple of days of fun talking about strategy, meeting the guys in the industry, drafting. And, you know, in some ways it's even better than First Pitch Arizona because it's right before your own drafts and auctions. You hear about the players. You get tidbits. I, I mean, I've been coming for almost 15 years to uh, some First Pitch events, whether it was those regional ones. And there's always some tidbit that you get that just helps you in, in your draft. So I, I encourage everybody to come. Really, it, you're right. It is different from Arizona, and it, Arizona is sort of you know one part, given where it falls in the calendar, it's one part sort of post-mortem on the season that just ended and kind of uh, flushing out of you know various degrees of like first thoughts of where we go from here or what's coming in the next season, right? You see some of the first drafts of the year there, et cetera. But by the time we get to Florida in March, Everyone's had several months in between to fully bake their own thoughts, 
develop their projections, et cetera. We have the labor drafts going on at First Pitch Florida. So we run three of those in three straight days, the Yale only, the NL only, and our mixed league, Ariel. Uh, so, you know, it's really, you, we've gone from Arizona being what just happened in 2023 and what are we, how are we going to react to it to by the time we get to Florida, it's okay. Cards on the table. We're drafting again. It's auction time. This is, you know, th- th- this is for real. This is labor, you know? So uh, it, it, they are kind of nice 10 poles of the off season, but they, they do both have a, their own sort of individual flow to them because of the calendar. And congrats to you on winning that labor league that you and I were in. You just ran away with it from the very beginning. I want to thank you, not thank you for going $1 over me on Mookie Betts. I thought I had him won and I had 32 and you went to 33 rats. And uh, that was one of the great moves that you did of that auction. Thank you. Yeah, that was a, uh, I don't often get a big runaway like that. That was uh, one of the lower stress league wins I can never remember. It was, you know, I, I've I've been on the other side of that. I've had like those big twenty point leads going in, going into September and had it go belly up. So I was kind of, you know, I wasn't totally relaxed about it the whole time. But it it really, you know, never really wavered. It was it was kind of nice to exhale with a couple of weeks left. Yeah. Ah, like, oh, this one's gonna be pretty good. <laughs> I can't believe I finished in fifth after drafting Edwin Diaz, Jose Altuve, Justin Verlander, Max. Oh Reed. man, yeah, you were. The, the opening day fab rebates I was giving you, I think I gave you like $80 or something. It was just absurd. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> very crazy. hard to win when you have that many injuries. And I guess it's on me for taking some injury old guys, but that was just ungodly. And I almost came back from it to, you know, fifth place, but uh, that that's hard to come back. And that was a hard-earned fifth place for the hole you started in, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's talk uh, actual things, and I do want to talk a little bit about projections because you're a projections guy as well. Do the projections over at Baseball HQ. Could you just tell the audience in general what are the basics of how projections are created and what goes into them? I think they sort of start the same way for everybody, right? It's anybody who proffers projections has some version of a multi-year weighted average of previous performance as their primary input, right? And some systems stop there and that's just what they put out and you know the you know what you're getting and you know the strengths and limitations of that format. And others will go pretty heavily into kind of thumb on the scale, moving switches and flipping data points around to sort of more customize what gets burped out of that initial model, right? And we're, the baseball HQ projections are more one of those. Uh, The projections, to tell you a little bit how the sausage gets made, are created as part of the baseball forecaster player profiles that go into the forecaster book every fall. And they start out with that weighted average. In our case, it's a five-year weighted average. But that initial projection kind of just gets burped out of the model, but it goes through pretty literally seven rounds of review before it actually gets written into a book. And that's manual review. That's a, an, a baseball HQ writer looking at that initial projection in in context of all of the skill trends that, that, that the player has shown in the five-year scan in the player box and saying like, 
I think this guy will get more playing time this year, or I think 20 home runs was a miracle and he'll never see it again. And But he'll review the projection in light of the skills analysis that he provides as part of writing up the player. And then it goes through an editor, and then it goes to Brent and I, and then it goes to Ron Chandler, who's got the final edit. And every one of us along the way have the ability, at least, to tweak, alter, utterly rewrite that projection if we want to. And right. so by the time you're, you know, five, six, seven layers down the game of telephone from the projection that got burped out of, uh, you know, Mar uh, uh, Marcel the monkey kind of model, it doesn't look like it started anymore. So that's kind of how we go through creating the projections for the 800 plus players that are in the baseball forecast or then, and then those projections just move over to baseball HQ for the rest of the off season after the book comes out. And we'll continue to tweak the projections there, primarily news-based events, either playing time changes or obviously free agency and player transactions that cause park factors, et cetera, to get recalculated. Um, but that's generally the way our process runs throughout the, uh, throughout the entire length of the offseason from October when we're writing the book right through opening day. And our projections are actually a little bit unique in that we regenerate them um, and create balance of the season projections every day from, you know, about now when camps open, or, you know, in mid-February through the uh, the last day of the regular season. Right. No, good stuff. I, I'm going to give it to Ruvain in a minute. I know, uh, uh, you know, this is more the projection discussion. Um, but uh, just a comment on projections in, in general. Um, there's a couple elements I want to add to that. First of all, uh, very often you'll see playing time and and rates, meaning like home runs per, per plate appearance or per at bat and strikeout per inning or strikeout per batter. Um, those are done separately very often where there's how much is he going to play and how good is he per time playing, and then you multiply in the end. Um, yes, it always looks at some past history, and each projection system is going to decide differently on what elements to incorporate. Do you incorporate velocity? How much do you incorporate that? Strikeout rate? I, you know, what underlying components versus high-level stats do you look at? Do you look at platoon splits? How to incorporate stat cast data? So every projection model, and I should call them projection artist, does it different. Every projection system is going to have elements of regression to the mean, Weighting of, of the different years, you know, you're not going to count last year as much as the year before, um, so on and so forth. And aging curves. If a guy is 34, then he go, becomes 35, he's going to look a little bit different, even if he has the same kind of uh, path, right? Uh, and it's done in a neutral context, and in the end, you adjust it with park factors. Um, if you're really into it, I know Derek Carty does adjustments to weather, even like umpires, uh, you know, and any kind of thing. So those are the, the elements that I see. Uh, Ruvain, let me go to you on this. How should you and who, how do you use projections? Basically, you're trying to figure out how to get a certain total of stats for each category and you use the projections to try to meld together a team that will help you win your league. I mean, that that's the basic of fantasy baseball. Not all projections are the same. Not all projections are equal. Some projections are better using uh, better for pitchers. Some are better with playing time. Some are better guessing injury and stuff like that. Um, and you have to try to find the right mix and match to build a team that has the correct amount of risk, that has the correct amount of base 
points that you can get and put it all together. And, and sometimes it's it takes a while to find that right match. It takes a while to figure out exactly what goes where. And it's, and it's basically you're putting a puzzle together with all these different projections that are out there. There are many different projection systems out there. And, you know, you just have to find the right one. Ray, so projections do have blind spots, and there are certain things that, you know, a computer can do if they're computer-generated that the human eye uh, can't do. You know, some projections are more manual, more human eye-made, and some are, uh, you know, computer-generated based on looking at old stats and stuff like that. What do you think are some of the, the blind spots of projections in general, and what, what does the human do better than the computer and vice versa? I think the best example of this for me is that the computer is trying to create a projection that's based on the performance of a human being, right? And a human being is not static, is not constant, and can change their trends, their behaviors, their approach, their body for that matter. And the projection system may not be able to react to that well or quickly. I, th I think the, the sort of canonical example of this in today's baseball is pitchers who are constantly changing either their pitch mix or their slider angle or their tunneling or you know these sorts of things that you know they can reinvent themselves essentially outing to outing week to week month to month a pitcher in june may literally because he's throwing a different arsenal not be the same pitcher he was in april and how does a projection system respond to that when it's not even, you know, it, let alone in season or let alone this season, he might be, he might've come to camp and picked up a new grip on his slider and he's got more horizontal break on it. And as a result, he's not really the same pitcher he was last year or the year before, which is when the data that's feeding the projection was based on. So. Pitchers in particular are kind of have kind of become chameleons this way, and projection systems are inevitably a couple of steps behind trying to keep up with that. Yeah, that is a big thing. Uh, pitch mix changes. I think eventually you're going to see more projection system componentized pitch mix and basically have a fastball projection, a slider projection, and then they're going to you know, use the most recent data to put the pitch mix in there. You know, I always go back to the example of Patrick Corbin. And when I say you should Corbinize things, it means, well, you're, you know, his slider was his best pitch. So he just kept throwing it more and it produced fantastic results for him. And so the, the underlying components per pitch were similar or projectable, more projectable. Uh, but if you use the most updated you know, what is he throwing and how, what percentage of the time, you'll get a much better projection. I think projections will head that way. I do think, though, um, also um, injuries in prior year, when you have a, a, a player who did terribly last year and it was because he was playing through injury, um, if a projection system doesn't know, hey, don't treat that year of data as regular because it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's not the right representation. That's one blind spot of, spot of projections. Um, it's not going to, you know, if, you're, if your system is taking 60%, 30, 10 the last three years, and you were injured last year, oof, it's, it's going to really show uh, outsized uh, downside for him where he's probably much better. Uh, and also playing time. I think that projections don't, uh, from a computer standpoint, don't spot 
uh, when a guy is going to play more. You really need to be more in tune with the manager and with the team. Oh, is this guy going to be the shortstop every day? Is he going to lead off? Is he going to bat ninth? Uh, that's stuff that projections really don't do as well uh, just based on prior statistics. Anything to add, Ruvain? Yeah, you just touched on it. I was going to mention it. Team philosophy. If there's a new manager, a new general manager, they may run more. They may run less. They may have a bullpen by committee. They may have a five-man rotation, a six-man rotation. They may have a static lineup. They may have a lineup in stasis that's that's always constant. They may have a, a lineup that's not, you know, that's all over the place. So a lot of it also is team philosophy. Like if you have a new manager, you don't know if he's going to run. You're going to get the same stolen base guy because you think he's going to steal the same amount? He may not. You never know that. There's also one other thing. There's also the personal aspect. Now, we don't see it that often. It doesn't happen that often. But I have to mention this because we heard about this in a first pitch Boston. We went there many years ago. We heard that Adam Dunn had a child who was not well during the whole course of the season, and he did horrible that year. We heard that the child got better, and we actually, me and Ariel, we actually decided to buy many shares of Adam Dunn. And that year, Adam Dunn went on to hitting about 40 or 45 home runs, and he helped us win the league. So we got him for very little because everyone thought he was washed up. So there are parts, I mean, if you ever read the book Fantasyland, he tries to use anything but the projections. He tries to see um, what, the, what the players are eating, what they're doing, and everything like that, and that type of thing. And those things, yes, they do play into it because there is a human aspect. These aren't robots. These are actually people. So those aspects do play into it, but we just don't know how much. That was our friend Nando DeFino in Fantasyland, who was the uh, the guy who got all the soft data. Yep, yep. Yeah, great book. You should definitely read that. It's one of the books that got me interested in fantasy baseball, by the way, is uh, Fantasyland. Definitely read that book. Um, how do you do player valuation, um, Ray? You know, how do you price players? Obviously, you have raw projections, and that equates to some dollar value. I'm just interested if you can touch briefly on, you know, what – uh, what method? Obviously, there's a lot of calculations, but do you do, and this may be as technical, do you do an FGP method, a Z-score method, a PVM? Like, what's, what's your philosophy on how to convert um, uh, projections to prices? So on the website with our baseball HQ projections, we do PVM. Uh, you're a, you're a, limit, a little limited in, in that world where you're trying to have values that can be customized to any number of infinite number really of league sizes configurations categories etc that the sgp model doesn't really scale to that so our <coughs> website projections our custom draft guide tool is based on pvm however in my own leagues whenever i have the data i prefer to use sgps and i will um generally in rotolab which is uh my preferred draft day software, uh, which I'm excited about because it actually comes out this weekend. Uh, I'll finally get my hands on Rotolab for this year. But in Rotolab, I always go through the exercise of uh, setting up the SGPs for my actual own leagues that I'm playing in because I feel like that's the, uh, that's the valuation system that I am most comfortable with when I have the data to back it up. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, in the actuarial world, I call it experience versus exposure. Like if your company's been writing insurance lines for ten years, you're writing the same type of risks. Your company's own data is far better than looking at the rest of the industry's data, right? Because it's really tailored tailored to yours. If you're playing the same league again and again, and you're doing the same type of format, the SGP method is the best method because it's the actual data. Uh, of course, if you're playing in a new league, it's not. Or if the environment changes and that's what i worry about these days with baseball that 
you know, stolen bases uh, are vastly different this year. If you would use last year's SGPs to price 2023, there was a little bit of a problem. So yep. because I'm more uncertain these days with the environment of baseball, I like that less, or at least I want to shy away. Um, I also prefer Z-Score to PVM. I think Z-Score, which is uh, focused on the dispersion with the standard deviation, second-order metric is slightly better than the PVM, which is a first-order metric. Um, but I, I do I do tilt towards SGP. So what I the Z-Score form, the way you calculate what each category is worth, the formulas are really the same between Z-Scores and SGPs. Um, so I use the Z-Score methodology. But I tilt if I know the SGPs. I tilt the numbers a little bit more towards the SGP because uh, that gives me a better flavor if I know the environment. But Z-Score is great because you can use it for any new league, any player pool. It works. Uh, it's very, very flexible uh, to everything. Yeah, it's a good point about SGPs and the limitations of them. You talk about the environment changing, and that's, um, you know, like the stolen base environment, that's certainly a key consideration. But, you know, SGPs can even get invalidated by three new owners joining your league with different strategies, right? You know, that, you know, even your own, you know, like you like you said in your uh, actuarial example, if you've got a stable environment where you've been doing the same thing, kind of just playing against the same guys in the same league for, format for a number of years, that data is great. But anything from changes in ownership to, changes in the players in your league to changes in scoring categories or number of roster spots to, as you say, the macro level MLB changes from the stolen base rules to the happy fun ball a couple of years ago, all that stuff can undermine the SGPs. So you want to make sure that if you're using them, you're using them in an environment that you think is stable enough to make them better than, than one of the more flexible methods. Agreed. So today we're doing Outfielders Part 2. We did Part 1 with Bubba Entrican. So just to, to get your philosophy, and I guess Ruvain too, he wasn't there that day. Um, what is your general take, Ray, on the outfield player pool for 2024? Any observations about the pool? I think from a couple of draft and holds I've done so far, my observation is that the outfielders tend to dry up a little bit more quickly than I expect. There have been a couple of times when I find myself chasing other positions earlier in a draft and I end up sort of behind an outfielders getting into round 15, round 18, round 20. And that turns out to, for me at least, to be a very uncomfortable position. I don't really like the, you know, not quite the $1 outfielder, but the, the $5 and under outfielder tier this year. I'm having trouble finding anybody I'm really excited about rostering down there. So as I continue entering more drafts this year, I, I, I am finding that I'm trying to be a little more conscious to front load my outfielders and at least stay on par with the league as we fill out the rosters, if not get a little bit ahead of them, because it's not a comfortable position for me to be chasing in the end game. Ruben, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that. It, it's very the outfielders at t on the top are very unique. When you get down toward the middle and the bottom, they all start looking the same. And and I'm not really sure you, you can take one or the other. They all really look 
almost exactly alike. So it, it and just like Ray said, they do dry up very much very quickly. Just look at Fab last couple of years in the outfield waiver wire. There's like nothing out there, and you're looking at the bottom of the draft board now. You're looking at those same players. You're not thrilled to have any of them, and so I mean, you know, it's very hard to live with an outfield of three middle guys and not having a top guy. Yeah, so discussed on the show last time, but uh, I almost think you need a top eight outfielder this year in five outfielder le- uh, leagues. Three outfielder leagues, not as much, although uh, they're really elite. The, the top the top eight, obviously Acuna at the top is just in another world, but there's a huge drop from the number eight to like the number 14 outfielder. We're talking like a $10 value in drop. It goes from like 30 bucks to 20 bucks. There's like, they're very few, maybe one or two 25, mid 20s outfielders. So that's important. And I don't like the $1 outfielders at the bottom. You don't want to have more than one. And if I can help it, not have any. I want to have my last couple of outfielders at 3 and 4 bucks. I'm good with taking a middle infielder and a corner infielder for a low $1, $2 at the end, but not the outfield in five outfielder leagues. Anybody disagree with that? No, I agree with that. Um, top, top eight might be a little strict for me, but I think that might just be your my um, difference between the straight draft methodology and the auction mindset, Ariel, because right. you know, it's easy to say at an auction that I want one of the top eight outfielders. Depending on where you fall in a snake draft, you may only get one or at most two looks at those top eight outfielders. And if you're using one of those picks on a starting pitcher or end, end up getting Bobby Witt or something, like the top eight outfielder may not be practical. But you know, thinking of it from your more usual auction mindset, I think that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and I'm, I'm and I'm thinking more maybe getting two of the top twenty or something like that, or one or two of the, at least of the top twenty. So at least you have some one of those unique outfielders on your roster. It also might might influence my decision to say I prefer Julio Rodriguez over Bobby Witt this year because uh, there's more like values later in middle infield that I'm comfortable with in the middle late rounds. But I'm more comfortable with a top eight outfielder. So for that reason, I might push Julio ahead of Bobby Witt from not because I think he's better overall, but just if I'm in a draft because of the game theory aspect of when I got to take players, I might actually push Julio as number two. Um, are there any specific stats that you need to get from the outfielders? Uh, we talked on the other show that stolen bases, um, almost all the stolen bases around are from outfield or middle infield. So with you f- having five outfielders, you got to get at least one or two or even three people who have a nice amount. Otherwise, you're going to be way behind. Does, do you agree with that, everyone? Yeah, I do. I think that, you know, that's one of the things about <clears throat> being careful about how we adjust our mindset to this more abundant stolen base environment, right? You you run the risk of getting casual about it and thinking, oh, there are stolen bases everywhere. There are not, in fact, stolen bases everywhere, right? And to your point, the bar you need to reach to be wherever you want in the category, whether it's middle or top third or whatever, requires that many more more raw stolen bases now. So you got to be careful because if you pick a pick, uh, I'll throw Corey Seager out there, uh, who I love as a player, but kind of influences your roster build because if you fill a position like shortstop without a stolen base source there now that's putting that much pressure on those five outfield spots to to get you to that now higher stolen base total you need to get to yeah definitely agree with that Ruven, you agree 
Yeah, I also think that for outfield, you should also get one one of these a couple of blend guys, like a guy who goes twenty fifteen or a guy who goes fifteen twenty or something like that, because you can get your stolen bases from middle infield, you can get your power from the corners, but these are the guys who want to spread out your still stolen bases, so you don't have to rely on getting like getting an Esther Ruiz just to make sure you have the stolen bases. You don't want to have to do that because he's a one trick pony. You don't want that. You don't have to rely on getting just a Kyle Schwarber because he's again a one trick pony. You don't want to have to do that. But so in those cases, you you know for the outfield there. Are a lot of outfielders that go 15-20 or 20-15 or 25-10 or 10-20, or that type of thing. Get a couple of those blend guys, and it spreads out your risk. So let's talk undervalued players and, again, how we do this on the show. We don't go through every player. We take a look at what ATC designates as possible undervalued players according to their projections versus market. Um, and so uh, we focus on them and do some deep dives. Um, we did the first half of the pool. Uh, and the other episode, so this is the middle of the pack to the bottom of the player pool. And let's start with Masataka Yoshida, who had a very nice first season. 15 homers, 8 stolen bases batted, a cool 289 with a fantastic 86% contact rate. Is Masataka Yoshida, Ray, is he somebody that we believe in? Do we like these projections that have him as almost a $7 source of profit? I'm, yeah, I'm pretty warm to Yoshida this year. Uh, the, the, and the first half in particular was very strong last year, and he kind of faded toward the end of the year. Uh, there are some reports locally here. I'm, in, uh, I'm a Massachusetts person, and there are some reports that he wore down quite a bit and is working on uh, some conditioning in this offseason to try to make him uh, hold up better through the course of the season. I think also the... Red Sox roster construction this year is going to let him DH a lot more, which will probably also help in that regard. But I think overall he got a little, whether it was fatigue or something else, I think the second half fade was a little over-exaggerated by the underlying skills. Uh, you know, he, his contact rate slipped a little bit, but was still quite good at 82% in the second half. Uh, his expected batting average by baseball HQ metrics was still 284 he hit a lot of ground balls in both halves, which I, which is something I'm looking forward to change a little bit and maybe unlock a little more power this year. But uh, at age 30 in his second year stateside, I am not surprised to hear that he's a profit source. Okay. Ruvain, any take on Yoshida? I think Ray read my notes because I have basically the same thing. His fade in the second half, I think the season just wore down on him. Anyone coming overseas to the United States, it's a longer season. There's more. It's more of a grind. It's more. There's much more traveling all over the country. It's it's a lot more work and a lot more stress yeah. on the body. So I think that may be one of the issues why he did have a better first half than a second half. I think if he tweaks the swing a little bit, he may get a, he may unlock like Ray said, unlock the power. But otherwise, he had a hard hit rate percent of about forty percent, which is not. You know, not awesome, but it's good. So if he if he can unlock that little tweak, because his his launch angle wasn't that great, he was hitting a lot of like Ray mentioned a lot of ground balls. If he can tweak his swing just a little bit, then those singles and doubles can turn into home runs. So I was just on the Fantasy Pros podcast, and we talked about Yoshida on there, and I was asked the question: Do we think that there's more growth uh, from what he had last year, or is this just you know looking for more of a repeat? And my answer was: I don't really know, because you know, it's a foreign player coming over. I don't know what type of adjustment he has to it. Obviously, the second half was a little bit of an adjustment. I personally don't see growth from here. I think what he did last year is repeatable, uh, which which at the current repeated state is a profit. I just don't see any more growth. I think, like, 
I'm not going to say last year was his upside, but I don't think there's much more. I think there's down, if any. Uh, but I think it's a high probability of him repeating. I mean, that that batting average is going to be high, and that's going to lead to a big source. And he, he does fit all five categories. He has something in everything. So I think in terms of his value earning, it's stable. Let's move on to Brandon Nimmo. I'll go to Ruvain first for the Met. Uh, we did – well, Yoshida was the Red Sox for the Red Sox fan, and uh, so let's give Nimmo uh, – Brandon Nimmo, on-base monster, fantastic walk rate, just gets on base. The Mets should score runs, or at least he should get to plus 90 runs like like he did uh, – last year was one short, but he's been over that for a while. Um, you know, he's going to bat lead off. He's going to have Lindor and Alonzo and a bunch of good guys behind him to, to get him in. Um, often undervalued. I have him again on the undervalued list. He's undervalued by about $6 here. Going in the 13th round, but he's earned values way, way above. The last two years, $15 value, $17 value. Going, going for an auction equivalent of six. Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan for growth from Nimmo, but... I don't see the huge slide, other than maybe the homers was a little bit high last year. He had 24 homers. Maybe that slides to 19, but that's what I'm projecting. So at the projection, he's a big bargain. I think there's a high probability he'll achieve that. What are your thoughts on Brandon Nimmo, Ruben? I'm actually a little nervous about Brandon Nimmo. Um, his K rate went up. He's walking less than earlier in his career. He actually got hit by pitch less this year than he did in any year recently, any year that he paid more than 140 games. He only got hit 11 times. So that's a change in philosophy. He used to be a leadoff hitter. He used to try to get, I know, I'm being serious. He was a leadoff hitter. He was trying to get on. And maybe that had been there a change in philosophy in the hitting coach that so he was trying to hit for more power. That's why his power numbers went up. And I'm also a little bit concerned about his playing time. The new manager, Carlos Mendoza, already said that, that that Harrison Bader is their starting center fielder, and that Nimmo, when he when they come to spring tra- spring training, they'll see where Nimmo's going to play. I, I I have no idea what that means. Yep. That's exactly the words what Carlos Mendoza said. So, I, I mean, he's going to play. I'm, I'm not concerned about his playing time, but where is he going to play? Are they going to DH him? Are they going to sit him more against lefties, even though he hits pretty well against lefties? Are they going to sit him? So I'm I'm a little nervous about Brandon Nimmo here. I mean, he is getting older. He's he's on the wrong side of 30 already. He's in the second year of a really big contract. So sometimes second year of big contracts, players tend to do better than the first year. Maybe that's that'll help him. But, you know, all these things add up to something that something changed in Nimmo from 2022 to 2023, and I wanted to change back to 2022. Mm, can you uh, flip a coin, uh, make the tiebreaker, Ray? You know, I can see why where, why the debate goes here because I've got conflicting uh, conflicting views on different parts of his skill set. I actually do buy the power increase, and I'll give, you know, you mentioned the 24 home runs, Ariel. All of our sub-indicators for power were very supportive of that, and we're projecting 20 for this year. Uh, so I, I think most of the power gains can stick. I'm with Ruben, then my concern is the playing time. I, I think the last two years were both driven by near 700 plate appearance seasons and knocking even 50 PAs off of that for you know some of those manager comments or the random 15-day IL stint and pushing that down towards 600. Now it gets hard to, now it gets hard to repeat some of those counting stats. And I'll just throw in one more point for you Mets guys. Yes, he's got plenty of, 
uh, offense behind him to drive him in with Lindor, Alonso, et cetera, like you said. But the other underrated aspect of a playing of a plate appearance total is how often the Mets can turn the lineup over and get back to him to get him another at bat in a game. And I wor- I do worry about the bottom of the bottom of that Mets lineup. I don't know one through nine how how, how strong it's actually going to be. They'll they'll get Demo home when he's on base, but will he get? as many plate appearances as you'd like to see in a good lineup. Man, this is depressing for Met fans here. <laughs> Got you depressed in there, and Ruve, you're depressed on Nimmo. I, I love Nimmo. I love his attitude. When he takes a walk, he sprints down the line. I, I, I love him. He's fantastic to watch. Um, so, yes, I agree with all that stuff for caution, but his bargain price, especially in an auction, I'd say he's much more viable in an auction than a draft. I mean, his return on investment, according to the projections, are like double. So in an auction, I think he's still viable even if he regresses a couple of bucks. Cedric Mullins, very puzzled about him. Um, he went from a $30 player in 2021. He was only a $7 player. He only had 400 at-bats last year. Um, is it is he going to go back to 600 at-bats on the Orioles? Is he going to bat leadoff? Is he going to steal all those bases? Is his power going to get anywhere near the 30? What say you, Ray, on Cedric Mullins? I'll give you one out of three. I think the stolen bases can come back, at least on a per plate appearance basis. Uh, yeah, you know, there was a, I think it was a groin strain last year that probably explains most of the loss in stolen bases. But I am pretty pessimistic about him getting back to those lofty plate appearance totals. I think he's more, he's going to start to be more heavily platooned and sit against the lefties, which really starts to cap his plate appearances at. You know, 500, 525 is sort of the typical upside for if you're only starting against right-handed pitchers. And I think he's very, I think, quite frankly, he's earned the uh, <laughs> earned a platoon role at this point with uh, lack of success against lefties. So that starts to cap the counting stats rebound. It means that even on the rate basis, the stolen base rebound is only going to be into the low to mid-20s, not back up into the 30s. So... I might be uh, I, I might be agreeing with the marketplace here and not seeing as much profit. Ruvain, is Colton Kowser going to take over at bats from Cedric Mullins, or is Mullins the man and going to get back to 290 batting average? Well, see, that's the thing. We were talking about him earlier today. He's a lefty, and there are the main three prospects, well, three of the main prospects in the Baltimore system. You, you mentioned Hauser, you mentioned um, Kesson Herstad is one, um, and they're all they're lefty also. So, I mean, are you gonna you gonna change a lefty for a lefty? I I, I don't know how much you know what big of a difference that's gonna make, especially you're gonna put a rookie lefty up there that just goes flies against everything that that's been that's ever been done. Where you don't usually put a rookie lefty against a lefty or second year lefty that type of thing. Um, um, weird thing about his stolen bases, he had only six stolen bases second half of the season, but I did a deep dive. 14 of his 19 stolen bases were on the road, which I don't understand. Were they stealing more on the road? I, I, I don't I mean, were they more aggressive on the road? I, I don't I didn't understand that. And where he's going in the draft right now, he's going near Anthony Santander. He's going near Christian and Canasio Strand of those three players. Mullins will probably have just as many, many at-bats, if not more, than, than both of them. So I'm not really concerned about the playing time. What I am concerned is that his launch angle last year was at 21, which was a career high for them. The year before that, it was 17. The year before that, it was 14. So I think if he corrects that little issue with his swing, that his, his launch angle may be a little bit maybe too big at this point, if he recorrects that, then he may see the power back. ATC projections, 18 homers, 25 steals, 250 batting average. 
Um, well, that would produce about a $2 profit. So this is small profit here for Mullins. Maybe that's a pass unless he gets cheaper. Hey, maybe he'll, everyone will listen to this uh, podcast. It'll, he'll go cheaper, and then we'll swoop in and get him. You never know. Um, let's go to Riley Green. I know, Ruvain, you're a big Riley Green fan. Uh, this could be a star budding. Definitely growth in, in, in there. He's only going to be 23 at the start of opening day. Produces in every category. Has a base of, of average. Ruvain, your thoughts on Riley Green for 2024? Well, I think Riley Green can at least repeat what he did last year, which was actually pretty good. He had 11 home runs, 7 stolen bases, and a 288 average, which is pretty good. He did have Tommy John surgery, but they said already that he's hitting, playing catch, and going through defensive drills at the spring training contract con- complex for the Tigers right now. So he looks like he'll have some restrictions in spring training, but I don't think he's going to lose any playing time. I think he should be ready for opening day. And if that's the case, you can expect you know more than that because he did miss a lot of time. He was playing through the elbow injury through the second half of the season, which saw his batting average go down. He was batting in the 300s for a while. So um, I think there is growth still there for Riley Green. He's still very young. The only thing is he is a center fielder, and center fielders can get injured more easily, and he may be a little more hesitant to die because of the surgery, so I'm not as concerned for him as a center fielder as opposed to other ones. I worry about the run production. I don't know how good Detroit will be. Um, so that, you know, at this part in the draft, 12th round, I don't think he's going to produce enough homers and enough runs and RBIs that I might need to get. I think it really depends on what stats I need at this point in the draft. Uh, but I, I like him for growth and, and I think there's more upside than downside. Any thoughts, Ray? I pretty much agree with that take. I, I'm not that worried about the Tommy John. It was notably the non-throwing shoulder, which you know, greatly shortens the rehab. Um, I, I love the way the bat is developing, but I think my open question, and maybe we're going to be a little bit, um, you know, this might be a case where he's another year away, is I would, what would really round out the package here would be a little more stolen base output, a little more aggression on the bases. I, you know, in, in terms of raw speed metrics, he has the wheels to do that, but we haven't really seen that take off yet. Uh, so it's hard to project something like that happening without any evidence of you know, without without any evidence of just saying he's going to unlock a new layer of uh stolen base production but if you told me there were 20 steals to come along with this package i'd be super duper excited about it um and i think he may eventually get there but it may not be this year what about taylor ward taylor ward had an amazing 2022 season 23 homers batted 281 even thrown five bags uh the angels are not going to be as good with Shohei Otani departing, but uh, I don't think he's as bad as he was last year. And I think he was out. He was hit in the hit, hit in the face by a pitch, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think he's going to be somewhere between the last two years. If he is, that's a source of profit. He's going in the 16th round for a guy who had an amazing season the previous year. And you might be getting a little bit of an injury discount. A lot of times when the guy was injured all year the previous year, the next year, because he just didn't do it, he gets uh, a discount. Is this one of these scenarios that Ward is really underpriced, Ray? It might be. I think my real question, this is one of those projections where I look at the projection, I'm like, the only column that matters here is the plate appearances. Tell me how much he's going to play, and I'll tell you whether or not we're making a profit, right? And to be fair, you're right. The, the last year's injury that cost him the last two months or so of the season were those – Facial fractures on a hit-by-pitch, which obviously is as fluky 
an injury as you can get. But then you go back to you know that really good 2022, and there was a you know he had a couple of uh, muscle injuries, you know, a groin strain, a hamstring injury that you know each cost him uh, an IL stint. So the track record of durability isn't here. That may not be entirely fair, but it's tough to project 500 plus plate appearances for somebody who's never gotten there. Well, 16th round in an auction, he's only going for four bucks. Is this a risk worth taking, Ruvain? I think it is. I mean, he's. I mean, there's no one knocking on the door to play outfield in Anaheim right now. I'm not. I'm not concerned that Joe Adele is going to come and steal his job. Okay, I'm. I'm not concerned about that. And where he's going right now in drafts, he's going around players like Kalenic, like Guriel, Lourdes Guriel, like Kerry Carpenter, around those areas. You know. I don't see, you know, of all those players, I think Taylor Ward may be the safest one because you know he's going to get to play. His home run to fly ball rate last year was only 11%, so he was a little bit unlucky with that. If he can get that up just a little bit, he can have the 20 home runs, and to get a 20 home runs where he's going, that's great. His Babbitt dropped 40 points from year to year, and his strikeout rate actually went down last year from the year before. I think this is a case of unluckiness. I think this is a buying opportunity um, I can't tell you that he's going to be a $15 player again, but can he be a $10 player? Yeah. Pay four, get 10. That's how you win your fantasy leagues. And he has the upside of 16 because that's what he did the year before. Um, he is 30 years old, years old. Uh, so it's not like he's a spring, you know, he's not like he's a 22, 25 year old player, but, uh, I still like the ability to bounce back. Um, so I think Taylor Ward is a good gamble because it's low enough an investment as well. Here's a guy I'm excited about. He is the number one outfield bargain according to ATC. It's Brian Dela Cruz. I think last I think this might be a possibly a breakout year. Last year he played 582 at bats, but I think it was even a year before his breakout. Uh, his skills improved year over year. I think that he has a chance of knocking in a lot of runs. That power, I think he might have 25-30 home run power, possibly. Um, We've seen hints of that. Uh, I'm projecting 21 homers. I think it could be even more than that. And at that projection, he's a $9 player going for like 2 bucks in round 19. I think this is a safe source of potential profit. I don't worry about the playing time either for him. So what's wrong with Brian Del Cruz being a great investment, Ray? I'm right there with you. He was one of my favorite, uh, you know, for as much as I said, I am not a wild about out the outfielders in the bat in sort of the round 15 and beyond range. De La Cruz is one of the exceptions. Uh, I've, I've been collecting an awful lot of him uh, this offseason already. Uh, you said a lot of the reasons why the skills growth is interesting. He's he, when you see concurrent contact growth and launch angle growth that seems like it should really unlock his power exit velocity has really never been a concern for him but bat on the ball more often and bat on the ball at the right angle were and he made progress in both of those areas uh we're still a little bit pessimistic about the playing time we've only got him at uh <coughs> we've only got him uh, knocking on the door of about 500 plate appearances 475 right now and that's we project 16 home runs uh, in that time, so you're right. If we if the playing time goes up another 10 percent from there, you know, gets it to the 500 plus range, then you're then you're not going to endure 20 plus home runs for sure. That's interesting. Why do you guys only project uh, only 500 uh, plate appearances? I mean, who's pushing them out in in Miami? 
I am looking that up right now. Let's see. Uh, Sanchez de la Cruz, Chisholm. It's the Abisail Garcia factor, basically. Um, how much is he going to play, I guess? The always the always injured Abisail Garcia? Yeah, that's the one. So once he yeah, gets okay. hurt, it's not a problem. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll take the over on, on the playing time there. So I think he's even more valuable than, than you think. Ruvain, uh, do you agree? Is, is this a good buy? It is a good buy because how many middle-of-the-order batting fourth or fifth guys are you going to get in the 19th round? Yes, he's on the Marlins. not a great team, but the top guys in that lineup will probably get on base in front of him. Again, turning the lineup around, that's going to be a question for the Marlins. But listen, he hit 19 home runs last year. He's still relatively young, and he's hitting in the middle of the order. He's going to get his plate appearances. I'm not worried about Abisal Garcia blossoming into a player that, you know, whatever, because he, he obviously Garcia is who he is. So I think he's going to get the playing time, and a middle-of-the-order guy again in the 19th round is great. All right, just a couple players left, but before we continue, time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So this trivia question is going to be based on outfielders, obviously, and it's going to be based on the newly published ATC projections that are out on most websites where they carry them at this point. The question is this. Can you name the top five outfielders with the highest projected batting average for 2024? Top five outfielders. Um, with the highest projected <laughs> batting average, according to ATC, for this coming year. You go You go first, Ray. <laughs> Thanks. Um, let's see. Mookie Betts. No. Ronald Acuna. <laughs> Acuna is number one. His projection is 314 for the year. Well, that's a good one. We mentioned one in the podcast already. We mentioned one in the podcast already. Uh, yes. Yoshida. Yoshida is projected at 294. Um, Jordan Alvarez. Jordan Alvarez projected at 296. He got two more. Is he really? Wow. Well, one of them is going in the third or, the third or fourth round. I know the next one is. I spoke about him on, on last week's part, uh, yes, podcast. Yes, Michael Harris. Is Michael Harris projected oh, sure. at 292. Yep, yep. And number five is Jung Ho Lee. Projected at 288. 25-year-old coming from the Korean League. He's he's known for his high batting average there. He's some speed, very little pop in seven years in the KBO. Only two seasons of more than 10 home runs. Um, he's coming over. He's a farm player just like Yoshida. Is he going to have the same issues like Yoshida had in the second half of the season, Ray? I was just looking at th that. Um, I think that's a concern, right? For all the reasons you gave with Yoshida, the longer season of Fewer off days, the you know the order of magnitude difference in travel, uh, that's those those are all considerations. We've got we at Baseball HQ at two seventy two, which is probably the difference in whether he's even a real asset in say mixed leagues or not, because the difference between a two seventy two and a you know a two eighty eight or two ninety, like uh, like with Yoshida. The problem here is the lack of power and, you know, it, 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 you'll eat the 290 batting average with single-digit home runs, like you mentioned, if that batting average is up there high enough. And once the batting average comes down to the 270s with single-digit home runs, unless he's going to steal, you know, 20, 25, 30 bases, which I think is unlikely, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time figuring out whether it's a good use of a roster spot at that point. So I have I have two problems with with taking him in drafts and, and auctions, and it's uh, similar reason to Ray. 
Um, yeah, ha- ha- it's very hard to roster him. If you're in a draft and you're waiting all the way to the 17th round and you say, well, I, I don't need any more stolen bases or homers or RBIs, well, we could use a guy who uh, is good batting average, but we don't know for sure because he's coming over from a foreign league. I don't know. That's, that sounds risky to rely on a guy that late to fill your batting average and miss out on some counting stats. I mean, maybe he'll score a bunch of runs because he'll get on, but single-digit homers and steals? Ugh. So I, I have an issue with taking that kind of spot. The other thing is the projection that I'm getting from ATC, I don't exactly believe it, or I believe that that's more of an upside uh, than it is uh, than it is a middle projection. A 288 batting average, that I, I don't see him getting much higher. Like, I don't think there's an equal chance of getting higher or lower. The difference is, like, la- last year when I projected uh, Yoshida, it was like a middle of the road. It was, he could be better than this, he could be less than this, uh, and he turned out to be better, but, you know, there was upside and downside built in. I just see downside built into this projection. So I don't believe the bargain that it's coming from. I don't know how how well Korean batting average guys translate. It's not the NPB, it's a different league even. I, so I'm just too worried that I'm not going to get the stats here. And it, it, listen, if he becomes a, a value and, and he hits 15-15 and 290, God bless the person who gets it. I, I just don't need to to, to try it. I'll, I'll get someone more sure. I'm, I'll, I'll wait and get Brian De La Cruz, you know? And on the injury front, he did break his ankle last year and missed a big chunk of the season also because of that. So there is a slight injury concern with him coming into this year also. Not huge, but there's a slight one. All right, let's finish up with two guys. Uh, one guy, Austin Hayes, another guy on Baltimore. Is this guy who's going to get 600 plate appearances or is he going to start losing plate appearances to other guys because uh, he seems like he's uh, about a $5 bar. He's only in round 21. Last year, he was an $11 player. The year before, an $8 player. The year before, a $13 player. Seems like he's pretty good with the values. Had 16 or more homers the last couple of years. A repeat would be a nice source of mini profit, and he gives you a little bit of everything in every category. What about Austin Hayes? Any interest, Ray? Not a ton, and I think you hit on the reason why. I'm not sure he's the 90% playing time you know, 550, 600 plate appearance guy that he needs to be to wring value out of this skill set. I think we have a pretty good idea what this skill set is. I think he's a, you know, 260 something hitter with, you know, a handful of stolen bases and I don't know, 18 home runs in 500 plate appearances, something like that. And we're projecting for 510, 510 plate appearances right now. Uh, and if, he gets to 550, 600, and we, and that home run odometer flips over to 20 plus. I don't have a trouble. I don't have trouble believing there's profit there, but um, maybe he's the opposite side of Ruvain's argument about all of the left-handed hitting Orioles prospect outfielders. Hayes being the right-handed corner outfield veteran here, maybe he loses time to Kowser or Herstad or. Uh, whoever else comes along. Stowers. Yeah, Stowers can come up also. So those three guys, and along with the fact that his strikeout rate is up to 25%, even though he may be a bargain, the, the playing time is going to be the issue. I think he is the lefty version, I mean the righty version of Cedric Mullins, so he's the guy who would suffer the playing loss, not as much as Cedric Mullins. So, you know, we, we've mentioned two Orioles here that the main worry is the playing time. 
is this something where, well, you know, we just, Hayes will play a little bit less and Mullins will play a little bit less and the prospects will play some, or is it going to be binary? Is it going to be some prospects going to take it from Hayes? Some prospects going to take it from Mullins? Like what, what, what version of, of the, of the, the playing time spread is, is really what's going to happen in real life, do you think? I think there's risk that the Orioles, you know, they just have so much prospect depth at so many different positions. I, I think there's risk that they do something dramatic that we're not seeing here, like Jordan Westberg becomes an outfielder or something like that, right? Because, you know, Holiday's coming up and Henderson's there and, you know, there's so many of these guys who can't all fit in the infield at the same time. And I think we've waited all winter for them to resolve some of that via trade and they haven't done it. And I think you've got to start to wonder if the answer isn't that one of these outfielders just gets squeezed out. Or they just play the hot hand. Or they can just play the hot hand yeah, the whole time. True. That's what they can do. That's probably what they're going to do. That's what they did last year when they sat Moans toward the end because he was slumping. So they played whoever else they had because he was slumping. All right, so I'll make a prediction, and I'll play this clip of myself saying this once I uh, we get to the middle of the season. I predict that one of these prospects on the Orioles in the outfield will be traded for starting pitching. The This is going to be a midseason trade where the Orioles just need to shore up an arm, whether it's a really good arm or just uh, you know somebody to get innings at a nice level, better than the fifth starter. And they'll trade one of these prospects because they have an abundance of major league-ready talent, and that will clear out some playing time for somebody. I think that's really going to happen. Last player, Sal Freilich. Um, This is a guy who I think is a possible sleeper. I mean, he looked pretty good um, in terms of counting stats in the limited time that he was here. This is a guy that could get to 15 to 20 stolen bases with 10 homers. Average might be decent. Um, You know, he's going at the end of drafts, round 20, so we're talking your last picks. And if you have to go $1 outfield, I'm not a big prospect guy in general, but, you know, looks like he has a major league job. I think he's a guy. Uh, what about Sal Freilich for, for being an undervalued player with your last outfield pick, Ray? Yeah, I'm interested. That's It's a pretty good – that's the right place to slot him to me. That's that's a pretty good representation of his value. I think he is going to play – there's at least <clears throat> sort of one established skill here with he makes enough contact, he draws walks, and he will steal – at probably an above average rate. So there's a path right there to double digit steals to give you sort of a foundation to value. And then the question beyond that becomes, can he unlock the power? And he's a 24 year old who's got 223 major league plate appearances. We just don't know. He hit the ball into the ground at a 53% clip last year. That's got to change for the power to get unlocked. Does that happen this year? Does it happen as the year goes on? I don't know, but you can find out while banking the stolen bases and probably a decent batting average because of the speed and contact foundation. So it's a decent place to speculate in my book. Yeah, good foundation. Good, you know, he has some raw ability to get something, and there's upside. I mean, what what more do you want from a prospect uh, in in the second in your last pick with a two dollar, one dollar, twentieth round pick? There, good speculation place. Ruvain, are you interested in Freelick? 
I am, especially at his price. I mean, he can definitely go 10 and 15. It'll all depend on playing time, obviously. But with Tyron Taylor, he was traded. Um, when he, when Frelick came up, he batted cleanup a lot of the time. And there are really no other lefties on the bench, unless you want to consider Jake Bowers. I mean, Cal Mitchell is there. So the playing time is there. He's not the typical number four hitter hitting the ball on the ground as often as he does. But if he can change that, then he'll have a lot of unlocked opportunities. All right, uh, we're up to the injury report, Ruvain. I'm sure there's a bunch of outfield injuries to talk about. What say you? Well, I already mentioned about the Raleigh Green, and, and I was going to throw in also about Taylor Ward that he had surgery um, on his facial. On his, he had multiple fractures after getting hit in the face. He's fine. He should be cleared for for spring training and everything like that. So there's no issue with that. Another guy who had a bad fracture. I was talking about Stone Garrett, a guy in, in deeper leagues. When he came up, he started hitting very well for the Nationals. He was actually carted off the field when he fractured his fibula trying to get a ball. Um, he went sur- had surgery in late August to address the fractured fibula, but he also had a procedure on his ankle. So he's slightly behind schedule as the season as 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 the he began his off season uh, training and everything like that. Jason Dominguez, actually, Aaron Boone said this week that he is quote on track to return during the summer. I love how Aaron Boone is so specific as to when players are going to come back. We have no idea when he's going to come back. Um, he'll pro- <laughs> he had Tommy John surgery. He'll probably come back. My expectation is probably around mid-June, maybe July. They're probably not going to rush him back. They want him to get fully healthy. They don't want to injure him. He's their top guy, and they want him to be able to play, especially if they can if he can take over center field instead of Aaron Judge and have not, not have Aaron Judge playing center field if they don't have to. Tommy Edmond, he sat, he sat out most of July to, to, due to a wrist injury. He had surgery on that wrist, arthroscopic surgery in, in October. He's still doing his hitting progression. Um, he is slightly behind schedule um, to, to start spring training, so that's just something to watch for. The question is about his power, but you know what? You're not getting Tommy Edmond for his power. You're getting for his speed, so I'm not worried about that. And Chaz... Jazz Chisholm had surgery for his turf toe. He had it repaired it was on his right foot. Um, he played through it, and he, he was, you know, okay, not great, but he was obviously hindered by it. He should be 100% going into spring training, and there are no issues with him. I know. Jazz Chisholm, I, I'm never very high on. He was almost 20-20 last year, but I, I don't know. I, I just think this guy is not going to play a full season at, at, at an elite level, and He's going in the fifth round. Any, any quick thoughts, Ray, about Jazz Chisholm? You haven't liked him since his rookie year where you tried to deal him to me and labor after a month. I remember that. You tried to get I dealt him as quick to, as possible. Yeah, I dealt him to Ryan Hallam for Zach Wheeler. <laughs> Sorry. Well played. <laughs> yeah. you, you've been very consistent in your Jazz Chisholm position, Ariel. Uh, yeah, listen, I drafted him, and I didn't like him, so I traded him. Uh, listen, he, he not as bad as I thought, obviously, but I don't know. You like him better than me, I'm assuming? I don't know. Not much. Um, we drew a uh, – we, we made a reference in the baseball forecaster to the Byron Buxton parallels that we're starting to see oh, here. So that's, uh, that's pretty ominous, right? Kiss of death. Yeah, and Byron Buxton is going to be injured at the end of this sentence. And he, and he's projected to be the starting center fielder for the Twins. That's what, that's what they said. Okay, so yeah, good okay. luck to the Twins with that. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's gonna last the whole season at center field. Byron Buxton. I mean, I, I just I just don't get that. Uh, we talked about Buxton on on last show. Um, just I, I I have no interest, and and he doesn't even give you anything anymore these days. There, there's no hope. It's just uh just gone away. Uh, I think Chisholm is a little bit different than Buxton, but. Yeah, I'm 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 not not a huge fan. Uh, if he was going nope. in the seventh round, then I would be. 
or at least I would be more interested, but he just never is able to convert. Or if he moves out of center field, maybe if he moved back to the infield, he'd have more value. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's the end of the show. I want to thank Ray Murphy for coming on from Baseball HQ. Fantastic show, really great strategy and analysis. So thank you so much for coming on. And I want to just tell everybody where we can uh, reach you, read you, and all things Ray Murphy. Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed hanging out with you for an hour here. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, excuse me, at RayHQ. Uh, you, you can find me over at Baseball HQ and in the pages of the Baseball Forecaster and at First Pitch Florida next month. Moving. You can follow me on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates as they come in from spring training because you're going to hear about a lot of stuff that you haven't heard yet. And you can catch my weekly in-season article on Rotoballer discussing all the injuries and who to pick up following them. All right, and I'm Ariel Cohen. You can see me on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, at ATCNY. That's the shortest Twitter handle in all of fantasy baseball. Although, Ray HQ, you got an underscore in there? Nope, just Ray HQ. Oh, no. We're tied. We're tied. Only five letters. Exactly. All right, so co-shortest Twitter handle in fantasy <laughs> baseball over there. Uh, my stuff over at Fangraphs, over at Rotorballer. ATC projections are up, so get them, download them, take a look, tell me what you think, um, and uh, that will be updated all the way up until opening day. ATC rest of season will be available this year on Fangraphs, uh, so check that out when it comes. Once again, thank you so much to Ray Murphy for coming on the show today and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.